0: Hello everyone, welcome back to uh, Policy Punchline. Here on the podcast, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. Joining me today is Nico Safos. Um, it's, a, it's a pleasure to have him on the podcast today. He is the interim director and senior fellow with the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS. Um, he's researched, written, advised, and consulted extensively On a range of fascinating topics including natural gas, the geopolitics of energy, the future of mobility and the global energy transition. He's the author of Beyond Debt, the Greek Crisis in Context, which was published in 2013. More recently, countless articles, reports and studies in the leading publications in energy policy and foreign affairs, including the National Bureau of Asian Research, Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy and the National Interest, among many, many others. It's great to have you on today. and an honor to be able to get to speak with you um, about uh, the role of energy in US uh, competition with China and foreign policy more broadly. Um, So I want to start off, um, if if you could just give a little background on the role that energy uh, understood broadly has played in the US strategy in the Indo-Pacific and in competition with China over the past couple of years, uh, maybe focusing on the Trump administration's approach.
1: Yeah, well, thank you very much for for having me. Great pleasure to be here with you. Um, so I think what you saw in the Trump administration was a uh, elevation of the threat that China was perceived to pose for U.S. interests. So if you go back to the World Trade Organization, uh, China's entry in the World Trade Organization years in the late '90s, early two thousands. know there was a sense that as china became more capitalist as it got integrated into the global economy it would become more democratic it would become easier to um, manage and handle and interact with and i think the trump administration was the first one to really take a sharp turn away from that philosophy to treat china as an economic and geopolitical rival and to try to figure out what the u.s response should be and The nature of China's overseas engagement has been much more economic than geopolitical, right? If you think about the US, it's always been a US security umbrella that has tied the United States to other countries, whether that is through NATO, alliances with Japan, South Korea, Australia. The Chinese engagement has been primarily through economics. Uh, China is a massive manufacturer. It is a big exporter of goods and in recent decades has emerged as a big economic investor uh, around the world. And so this all came to pass, I think, with a Belt and Road Initiative, which China launched and people disagree about what the Belt and Road Initiative exactly is and what is what should be counted in or what should be counted out. But no matter how you look at the numbers, there was no question that the Chinese were going out there and willing to spend a lot of money and invest a lot of money around the world and in particular in southeast asia and the broader indo pacific and so i think the challenge for the trump administration was to figure out how do you respond to that what do you do about it and that response had two elements to it one was to really articulate the dangers that u.s policymakers saw from chinese investment. so you would have Uh, then Secretary of State Mike Pompeo going around the region and saying you take Chinese money you're going to get yourself in debt you're going to get corruption and non-transparency you're going to get poor quality projects and so there was this big critique levied against China about anything that it was doing that it wasn't making things worse for these countries so there's a lot of diplomacy um, and outreach to these countries to basically warn them or to dissuade them from taking Chinese money. But the other side of the coin was a lot of times when the US was going to these places, the answer was, well, what do you have for us? What do you have to offer? Because we have huge infrastructure, economic development needs, we need investment, we need foreign investment. What do you have as the United States to offer for us to be able to turn away China? And that's where things got a little bit more complicated complicated. So I think what you saw from the US government was an effort, a multi-year effort, to really build up that geoeconomic toolkit, to be able to answer uh, the question of, what do I have to offer and why should I go with the United States rather than a Chinese offering? Um, and so that had multiple components. It, it resulted in the reauthorization and a, an extended authorization of the US Export-Import Bank. It led to the development uh, or the launch of the International Development Finance Institution to repurpose and expand what used to be the overseas private investment corporation OPEC. And it also took the form of a number of regional initiatives, including Asia edge enhancing development and growth through energy that is edge, um, the three dot um, uh, Sorry, the blue dot uh, network which is really about quality projects so the united states tried to figure out how do you bring the various elements of the u.s government to facilitate the u.s private sector in proposing an alternative to china that was the conception uh, of the strategy that the united states approached during the trump administration and energy was a key part of that offering in part because that's what the Chinese were investing in but also that was a sector that the U.S. government thought the United States had a competitive advantage primarily because it had become a huge producer of oil and gas uh, over the last decade.
0: Well thank you for that that's an excellent overview um, I, I think of uh, you know, that really covers um, the way that the Trump administration approached geoeconomics and energy's role um, within that, I wanted to pivot um, to. Uh, uh, obviously, we're moving from the Trump administration to the Biden administration, and what we're looking for right now is we're trying to see what are the contours of the way that energy is going to figure um, in a Biden foreign policy. Um, and so, uh, as we're as we're, so I, I want to get back to the the future of the DFC um, and XM and and where they're going to go. Um, but first, um, what's been making news recently um, and. and You and some of your colleagues at CSIS have some excellent commentary on this, the American Jobs Plan. Um, I want to quote uh, from your August 2020 report on the future of a U.S. international energy policy. You say, no foreign policy can compensate for waning economic and technological preeminence, so the starting point for any strategy must be to ensure that the United States remains as innovative and competitive as possible. In terms of broad strokes, as we're moving from the Trump administration's emphasis on, okay, we're going to finance energy projects through Asia Edge, the XM, and DFC, and we're moving towards this massive domestic investment that the Biden administration is proposing. In broad strokes, how do you think that the American jobs plan would help or fail to help these goals of ensuring that the U.S. remains as innovative and competitive as possible and using that as a starting point for our foreign policy?
1: Yeah, that's a very, really good question. And I think that the starting point for me is that the American jobs plan goes in a way back to the fundamentals, right? The sense that there has been underinvestment and that some of the basic networks and the basic connective tissue of the economy, we have just let that fray uh, over decades where we just haven't spent enough, haven't invested enough, haven't supported enough the kind of networks and industries and sectors uh, that have always made up uh, and contributed to the vibrancy of the US economy. So from that perspective, um, it's hard to argue against the conception of the American Jobs Plan right, as a way to go back to this um, era where the United States government and the federal government in particular puts serious money behind supporting specific sectors and industries so that is the broad contours I I think it's definitely going in the right direction and its main challenge is that it comes after such a long period of neglect where there's just so much to catch up on and in fact uh, you know the reception to the American Jobs Plan from its critics has primarily been that it it does too much Uh, and I think that just speaks to just how much there is to do is what a proponent would say so that is one I think the question becomes harder once you start getting into the details. What sectors are we talking about? What does competitiveness look like? And I think what we've learned over the last sort of 10, 15 years in the energy space is the United States is fantastic, fantastic at innovation. We have an extraordinary network of labs and the Department of Energy. And the ability of American scientists and universities and labs to come up with new ways of doing stuff, there is nothing like that in the world. So that's one thing we know. What becomes challenging is getting those ideas and these technologies out of the lab into the market. And so let me pause there and go to the other extreme of innovation, which is, If you want to be innovative, if you want to be ruling and winning, as the Biden administration calls it, winning in the sectors of the future, you got to be a market for those sectors. You can't be the EV capital of the world if you're not one of the largest market for electric vehicles. You can't be a big big, uh, producer of wind turbines if you're also not a big consumer and user of wind turbines. And what we've learned over the last 15 years, which is not a huge shock, is that if you give people money and if you give companies money to do something, they will do it. That is the main way we reduce the cost of solar photovoltaics, of wind turbines and of electric vehicles. We provided incentives for consumers to buy and for companies to install and manufacture these products. What we haven't been very good at in the United States is finding the non-monetary ways of uh, creating markets, regulation and rules and incentives and nudges, uh, which means that then when we try to create markets, we do it in a very expensive way because we do it only through money. Uh, The perfect example is if you look at electric vehicles, you can give money to someone to buy an electric vehicle. That's what the U.S. does. Other countries uh, give preferential treatment, to electric vehicles in terms of parking or access to the city center if the access is constrained or in China it's much easier to get a license plate if you're going to get an electric vehicle than if you're going to get an internal combustion engine Um, other countries tax gasoline a lot more than the U.S. does so there's all these other ways in which you nudge consumers and if you don't do these things you end up just paying more for it but what we haven't gotten very good at is if you move away from the pure deployment into the manufacturing side of things, where you say, okay, sure, I can get someone to buy an electric vehicle. How do I make sure that that electric vehicle is made in the United States and it's made based on supply chains that are also in the United States? And so in my mind, I think of the spectrum on the far end is innovation and the U.S. is fantastic at it. On the other hand is deployment. And if you give a lot of money, people will do and they will choose the low carbon option. In the middle of these two extremes is manufacturing and non-economic ways of incentivizing behavior. And that, to me, is where there's a big gap in terms of our tools, our understanding, our historical performance. We saw solar PV as a great example, solar photovoltaics. you know, It was a business a technology that was invented in the United States, the US. Was until the 1990s one of the major producers in the world, and then as the technology got scaled, China, everything got moved to China, and China now produces the vast majority of solar PV uh, modules and cells in the world. Right, so that is a great example of we know how to do deployment, but we're it's much harder to get manufacturing. So to go back to the American Jobs Plan, you know, so much of it is about manufacturing and jobs and union jobs and economic development and allocating or channeling these jobs and investment in disadvantaged communities and communities that have been left behind, that's much harder stuff, right? So when I look at the American jobs plan, you tell me you're going to spend 174 billion dollars on electric vehicles. You know, do I believe that you can incentivize people to buy electric vehicles if you give them money? Absolutely, uh, that's going to happen. But once you start moving more towards manufacturing, workforce development, regional economic development and clusters, that's when things become, I think, much harder. And it's not just about throwing money at the problem, but it's about thinking about more core and fundamental processes in the U.S. economy that lead to manufacturing being located here versus somewhere else.
0: Yeah, So that, that's exactly what I was going to touch on was that um, $174 billion for EVs. Um, uh, it seemed like um, obviously we don't have uh, total details on what's eventually going to pass. It could look very different when, when it passes Congress, but it looks like the Biden administration is hoping to have both supply side tax credits um, or and uh, those demand side sales rebates so that basically they, they want to incentivize Production of EVs at every step in the process. Do you think that um, that's sort of the way to approach uh, ensuring that we have a supply chain for EVs that, that is more domestic and secure? Um, uh, providing basically tax credits to manufacturers at you know at every point on the supply chain, or, or would you be more focused on less monetary ways to bring EVs back home and you know more broadly be able to compete with China when it comes to green tech?
1: Well let me break up this question i think in two parts right do i do i think that supply side and demand side together work better absolutely uh if you want to create a value chain in the united states if you just give people you know a seventy-five hundred dollar um, credit to buy an electric vehicle they're just going to buy whatever electric vehicle is available to them there is nothing that pushes them to buy a, an electric vehicle that is made in the united states so if you want to create that chain you have to think about that entire value. Um, having said that, you know, you go back uh, a little bit over 10 years, we did have an advanced uh, vehicle manufacturing tax credit that was again geared towards Detroit and, and getting the automakers to invest in fuel efficient vehicles and electric vehicles. Um, and there wasn't actually that much uptake of that credit. So the credit existed, but manufacturers didn't take advantage of it fully. And so that's why I talk about, it's not just the money, it's really thinking about the ecosystem and thinking about the type of business model and the type of networks that industries rely on in order to be successful. And one of the things that has always been very difficult for American manufacturers is there's always been so dependent on big cars. That's where they make their money. That's what they like to sell and what they're comfortable selling. That's what we're marketing to American consumers. And that's a harder space for the electric vehicle to compete. And it also means that uh, it's harder to sort of reconcile from a climate perspective you know, doing a lot of big SUVs that run internal combustion engines, and then also trying to roll out electric cars, and that's not—it's not an easy match to to make. So that's why when I look at the EV part of the American Jobs Plan, I know that's going to get more EVs in the streets. I know we're going to get more passenger vehicles. We're going to get more buses, we're going to get school buses, the Postal Service, hopefully. I know all that stuff is going to happen. Um, It's not obvious to me that we have all the pieces together to make sure that those are made in the US. So that's answer number one to your question. Answer number two is if you think about supply chain security more broadly, um, you know, the energy world has thought about energy security for a long time. And one of the ways in which successive administrations really from President Nixon onward have thought about energy security has been to measure how much you import relative to how much you consume. It was after all, President Nixon that launched the goal for energy independence to try to get the U.S. to be off Persian Gulf oil or Middle Eastern oil. So what we've learned in 50 years essentially of trying to do this is one, Security and domestic production are not the same thing. Uh, you can produce stuff at home and still be insecure. Uh, you can produce stuff at home and still have resilience and supply chain challenges. We saw those in Texas in February. It's a domestic market powered by domestic fuel. And if you don't look after it well enough, you're gonna have trouble. So one, I think is a lesson that we've learned, which is to not equate domestic production with security because those are two different things. And second is, you know, trade is good. We trade for a reason. It allows people to specialize. It allows uh, countries and companies to complement one another. And so one of the ideas that we are trying to advance at CSIS in our research and in our thinking is don't equate supply chain security with everything has to be reshored. There are different ways to achieve security. You can trade more with your allies. You can trade more with. Countries that you feel more comfortable with. So, to take the example of electric vehicles, or you can do the same thing with solar, you don't have to manufacture everything in the United States. What you could do is to go back to talking about China, the Belt and Road Initiative, you could say, How can I help Southeast Asia become a manufacturing hub for the US market in clean energy products? So, it doesn't have to be that everything is made in the United States, but If you have to pick between depend on China or depend on Southeast Asia in factories that are owned by the Chinese or depend on Southeast Asia by factories that are owned by the U.S., you know, I would much rather go with depend on Southeast Asia from uh, U.S. manufactured or or U.S. uh, facilities, U.S. owned facilities. So there are different ways to think about supply chain security that isn't just about everything being made in the United States. So that is one of the ideas that we wanna make sure that we don't conflate that in order to be secure from China, everything has to be here, nothing can be in China uh, because that's not really realistic given where we are in the world, but it's also not the only way to organize and to achieve a strengthened and secure supply chain for clean energy.
0: Yeah, that's a fascinating thesis. And one that I have uh, come across, especially in um, your report on the role of industrial policy and trade um, in shaping clean energy um, supply chains, um, which focuses on some of the ways that other governments um, have tried to secure their energy supply chains. Um, I was wondering specifically, and and I would include in this um, maybe semiconductors and strategic minerals. um, What are some successful policies uh, pursued by other nations, uh, including China, maybe Germany, India, in the ways that they have secured their energy supply chains, um, and that, and and that obviously doesn't, um, you know, like you're saying, it doesn't necessarily mean reshoring, but it could mean changing where they're sourcing um, their upstream, uh, yeah, upstream products that they're buying uh, when they're producing their their energy products. Are, are there any policies that you see across the globe in terms of securing supply chains uh, that you think the United States could emulate? Um, and and this, you know apply to EVs or semiconductors or strategic minerals? Wherever wherever you see inspiration um, from other countries in terms of their industrial policy and the way that they're securing their energy supply chains.
1: Yeah, let me, let me actually first answer the question of what I don't think we should be doing or the lessons that we've seen that you may want to avoid. Um, if I can go back to the question of if you throw money at a problem, things will happen. There's elements of Chinese industrial policy that are exactly that, which I have zero appetite for emulating, like just making credit endlessly available to whoever wants it because they meet the definition of a strategic sector. And having state-owned banks say that as long as you're working in the sector, how much money do you need? We're going to give you as much money as you need. We're going to roll over the debt over and over. You can waste a lot of money doing that without producing an industrial sector. You can also waste a lot of money and actually do have an industrial sector to show for at the end. So that is one thing that we know you can produce results, um, but it can be needlessly expensive and, and and wasteful. So that is one thing that um, I wouldn't I wouldn't try to emulate this kind of uh, endless spigot of money for someone as long as they're operating in a strategic sector. The second thing we've seen is. A lot of times industrial policy at home can be well-intentioned and purposeful and targeted. And if you don't have a holistic strategy, you can really have it be undermined by trade. Um, so you go back to uh, the last sort of 10 years in the United States, there was a lot of funding for, you know, solar PV manufacturing in the United States. The Germans had the exact same thing where they were trying to, they, they believed when they gave very high incentives for solar PV to be installed in Germany. They thought that German manufacturers would benefit. And both of them were ultimately undercut by the Chinese. And so you can have sort of well-intentioned targeted strategy to support manufacturers. We had a manufacturing energy credit in the United States to support them. But if you don't plug in all the holes or if you don't build up your defenses fully, you can have one element of industrial policy, which was a manufacturing credit being undermined by another element of industrial policy, which is your trade regime and what you allow to come into the country. And the U.S. tried tariffs to to counter the Chinese uh, in solar and in wind. The Germans or the EU tried tariffs as well. They were never particularly successful at uh, protecting local industry. But one of the lessons for us is that you kind of need to think about it in a holistic way, that you may think that you're doing really well in one area, but if you don't think about trade, the manufacturing, the deployment altogether, you may find yourself um, essentially with a a weak link that undermines your whole strategy. Here's what we've learned, I think does work. Uh, Play to your competitive advantages. You know, a lot of what we're seeing in clean energy is legacy industrial sectors being repurposed to meet the needs of new industries. So we have people that used to make sort of glass are now moving towards, let's try to figure out how do we make the equivalent products for uh, clean energy. Uh, You have an offshore oil and gas industry that is trying to think about using its expertise to to, uh, kick off a boom in offshore wind. Um, So these are areas where you can have historical legacy industries that may be looking for a new purpose and you can incentivize and support uh, those industries. Uh, Even the Chinese for all all the caricaturing that we do about how much money they've spent uh, propping up and subsidizing the sector, you know, a lot of what also happens is there's a serious amount of experimentation and learning that has taken place over decades in their manufacturing um, uh, sector. Um, The other thing that we know from a success perspective is that we know that manufacturing flourishes in clusters. We know that if you just plop a factory in the middle of nowhere, uh, that factory itself may do okay depending on how it's connected to the rest of the world, but that factory, it's not gonna grow into a massive industrial cluster. We know that you need a concentration of suppliers, you need proximity to universities or other institutions that promote learning uh, and promote learning, shared learning across the sector. Uh, And so one of the things that we've been sort of trying to to grapple with is, you know, what is the Silicon Valley of clean energy? Um, We know that if you wanna do oil and gas, you go to Houston. Uh, If you wanna work in tech, you go to Silicon Valley. Uh, If you wanna work in finance, you go to New York. Uh, If you wanna do sort of, you know, biotech and and pharmaceuticals maybe you go to boston Um, and so we don't have that same uh sort of clustering in the united states it's not that we don't do that we do that scattered around the country but that's one of the things that we have learned i think from the history of of manufacturing in general and clean energy manufacturing as well Um, we're seeing elements of that trying to be created in offshore wind, where we have a number of states that are trying to advance offshore wind on the east coast of the United States, and the Biden administration has put forward an ambitious plan to help them, both on the permitting side as well as putting money on the table. That is the kind of example that when I see, I think this has a lot of the elements of success. You have legacy industries, you're trying to repurpose ports, you have existing infrastructure, you have states that are targeting not just Deployment but deployment connected to workforce investment to upgrades in infrastructure, you have an onshore wind sector that is very strong in the United States that can expand to offshore wind, you have a historical oil and gas industry in the United States that has a huge amount of experience the Gulf of Mexico doing offshore operations, you have clear demand pool from the states asking and doing. uh, auctions to procure. Offshore wind capacity. So that is an area where I look at that and I say, yeah, it has a lot of the elements of what success could look like. Uh, And so that is the kind of industrial clustering where you can imagine that this would be successful far more than any one of those policies or initiatives being done on its
0: own. Um, well, thank you for that. Yeah, that I think that covers um, everything I was asking about and more. Um, you mentioned playing to our strengths, um, uh, playing to the areas where we are competitive, and and many would say that right now, at least, LNG exports and natural gas is the area where we are strongest and the most competitive. Obviously, the Trump administration was very focused on energy dominance um, in the way that it um, approached the rest of the world when it came, when it comes to energy. Uh, how do you see the Biden administration um, pivoting? On uh, U.S. exports of fossil fuels, um, particularly keeping in mind, you know, the uh, January 27th executive order, which basically was directing agencies to end financing of um, fossil fuel projects abroad. Do you think that natural gas has a place there, or uh, are we, or is the Biden administration going to abandon natural gas as an area where we are competitive and we can promote it as something that, especially when compared to coal or oil, it does reduce emissions?
1: we're still at the beginning of answering this question i don't think we have enough data points to answer with confidence but we we can say the following one even during the trump administration uh, there was a lot of rhetorical support for gas and lng there were u.s officials going around the world touting u.s gas and u.s lng Um, if you really step back and say okay what did this all accomplish the answer is not very much um, there were probably a few transactions that, that happened uh, in terms of companies signing long-term contracts because they thought it would look good. Um, there were maybe some investors that chose to invest in the United States rather than somewhere else, uh, and they, they saw that that could get them some political benefits. But in the grand scheme of things, you know, this was a sector that took off in the early 2010s. It did really well under the Obama administration. It, it did equally well under the Trump administration. And... We shouldn't overstate the extent to which uh, the administration's, the Trump administration's policies or advocacy really move the needle for this sector. So I think that's the, the contextual factor that I would say before I answer this question. Two, I think when you look at the Biden administration, I think there is a, a balancing act. Clearly the emphasis, the focus, the excitement is on low carbon energy. Uh, I don't think the, if you look at the staffing, whether it's at the State Department, the White House, the Department of Energy, um, if you look at who is making policy, uh, you don't have a huge presence of traditional oil and gas folks that are also doing clean energy. You have a lot of clean energy folks, environmental justice, climate change people. And so you don't have, I think, that uh, you know, I am of two minds approach towards natural gas that may have been a little bit more uh, obvious or prevalent during the Obama years. Having said that, number three is, there is, I think, a great effort by the Biden administration to understand the politics of hydrocarbons in the United States. And the reality is that we have about 10 states in this country. That are very dependent on oil and gas production for their livelihoods, where where the state budget, jobs, local budgets that fund the police or the schools that pay for infrastructure, uh, huge employment and linkages, backward linkages from that employment, not just on the extractive side but on the pipeline side, on refining, and so I think there is a desire. By the Biden administration to find a way to not needlessly antagonize these constitu- constituencies. And I think the thinking there is to say, you know, we need to offer a plausible path to these people in these communities in order to get their buy-in in the energy transition. So all this is to say, to bring us to number four, is that you don't have a sharply negative view towards natural gas. You don't have a sort of outright ban. You don't have people saying, let's stop exports. You don't have an uh, an assault on sort of natural gas and its utility in the energy transition. But you also don't have um, sort of the talking points of how good gas can be in the energy transition. Uh, you don't have that rhetorical nod to the role that natural gas has played in reducing greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. So you're not seeing that same um, language supporting natural gas. I think what you're seeing from the Biden administration, and I think this is empirically correct, is to say you know, whether gas is part of the solution to climate or not depends on where the gas is going and what it is displacing. If you send gas to replace the use of coal in China or in India, or one day maybe in Vietnam, um, you know, that is a uh, unquestionable sort of positive for uh, climate, uh, at least in the short to medium term. If you send gas to the UK or to Spain or to France, uh, you know, the argument that gas is playing, that U.S. gas is playing a major role in decarbonization is just much weaker there because the market is different. What energy sources these countries use are different. And I think you're seeing that kind of uh, nuance in the thinking about natural gas, which I, as a, as a long standing sort of natural gas expert, appreciate because it does require nuance. What we haven't seen yet or we haven't seen play out fully is during the trump administration and all this advocacy there are a lot of countries that raised their hand and said yes i would like to participate i can i would like some investment i would like you to come here and do things with me these people are still there just because the white house changed hands doesn't mean that the rest of the world changed um uh, shifted gears as well and so what we haven't quite seen is when these requests are coming in what is going to be the u.s response i think the u.s response will be We still wanna work with you. Let's talk about other places we can work with rather than trying to steer them towards natural gas. But there will be times when natural gas makes a lot of sense as a solution. And we haven't seen exactly where that line will be drawn but it's quite possible that you could see some narrow exemptions uh, to allow for say financing of gas projects. But my general sense is the answer the default answer is no let's work on something else and once you work through that if you just can't find something or if there's something that is just so unequivocally good and makes sense from a developmental or from a national security and foreign policy perspective you know you could maybe see financing but I think it will be very small and it will be the exception Um, I think that's, that's probably what would expect. But if you also told me that the United States has already fin- la- financed its last gas project overseas, uh, I would have no trouble believing that as well.
0: Yeah, that's definitely, um, it, it covers a lot. And also, as you've mentioned, um, uh, we still don't really know the contours of, of where they're gonna draw these lines. Um, to sort of lean into that, um, I was wondering uh, in the Indo-Pacific uh, specifically, Um, a transition from coal often supplied by China, financed by China Um, in Southeast Asia and India, a lot of countries are trying to move from coal to natural gas in terms of their power mix. Do you think that the Biden administration um, as it's hoping to counter China broadly will be more sympathetic to natural gas projects that might also have an added natural, natural national security benefit in that they are moving these countries away from reliance on China To cleaner uh, reliance on a cleaner fuel that's coming from the US, say, in, you know, across Southeast Asia or India and the Indo Pacific more broadly.
1: If I have to put myself in a position of the Biden administration to think about how they would think about this, um, look, if you go back a few years, you would say we now use coal or we're building up coal and renewable energy is too expensive it's not ready for scale it presents us with challenges for integrating it into the grid the um, the financing costs are high because investors are queasy about investing in emerging economies yet all these barriers that allowed you to say i need the so-called bridge i understand that here i am today I understand where I want to be in the future, but the future is far away and I need something to get me from here to there. That was very much of the philosophy of the articulation for why natural gas had a role to play in these markets. I think what you would get now, if you talk to folks in the Biden administration, you hear that a lot from people on the clean energy side is to say, well, that is no longer the world we live in. We no longer live in a world where it's coal, then gas, then renewables, because the cost of renewable energy has gotten much cheaper. Um, So you look at Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam has for a very long time been trying to import LNG. I, as a consultant, was in Vietnam over 10 years ago talking about how to bring LNG uh, into the Vietnamese market. Uh, It still hasn't quite happened. Um, It's gonna happen soon. But the bottom line is That what you thought about in 2009 and 10, when I was there, and when you think about in 2021 is a totally different context and Vietnam has offered some very generous tariffs for solar and there's been a huge solar boom happening in the country. And we're seeing the same thing happening in other parts of Southeast Asia, whether it's solar or wind or both, where countries are changing regulations that are making more attractive for private investment, they are... Getting their state-owned companies to be a little bit more open to solar and wind, and you have this big boom taking place. So I think this strategic context has changed because the old the set of alternatives that is available to a country in Southeast Asia has changed. And so that in that setting where five, 10 years ago you could have said, let's do this, and then when solar and wind is ready for prime time, we'll do that. Today the answer is we'll solar and wind is ready for for prime time today, do I really need a interim solution? Or I think it becomes very difficult for gas in that environment is this fear that you're going to, quote unquote, lock in emissions. That if you build it now, because it's designed to operate for maybe, say, 20 years if you build a power plant, then if you build something now, you're locking in and you're going to get 20 years' worth of emissions. Strictly speaking, that's not true. I mean, we have seen in Europe and in the U.S. and elsewhere, uh, you build something, and if the market changes, you shut it down. <laughs> that's uh, that's how the U.S. exports uh, export sector of LNG got started. It got built for imports. The market changed, and you never really use it for imports, and you turn it to exports. So, uh, but but that fear of lock in, of taking in emissions into the system for a long term, that creates an ended. I think hurdle for gas, because people think that the bridge is gonna be much longer than it need to be. And they are scared of uh, enabling the bridge to begin with. And so I think that is a barrier for gas that is gonna be difficult to overcome in a lot of these places.
0: Um, Well, yes. And I think uh, you also have mentioned in your commentary uh, comments that um, uh, Special Presidential uh, uh, Envoy on Climate, John Kerry has made about the lock-in effect um, and, and not wanting to leave countries with infrastructure that's going to be obsolete soon. Um, I, I, like you, I'm a bit, bit of a natural gas enthusiast. I'm still holding out a little hope. Um, and one of the exciting ar- arenas for me, and this is something that you mentioned in your uh, quarter one gas line report, and for any listener who is uh, interested in energy um, and natural gas specifically, um, d- definitely a must read. Um, uh, you mentioned carbon capture systems. Um, and sort of mm-hmm. this increasing interest um, on transparency about emissions and net neutral emissions gas projects. I think it was in Mozambique was the example that you gave, um, but can you tell us a little bit more about what that is and if that makes natural gas um, a much more compelling uh, a climate investment for, for reducing emissions?
1: Yeah, so there's a lot of different things happening in this sector, so which I'm gonna to try to summarize briefly. So. The starting point for natural gas, the case for natural gas from a climate perspective, um, has always been that you know, it emits roughly half the CO2 emissions of coal at the point of combustion. So that that's been sort of the standard line. If you say, why are we doing gas? The answer is we're doing gas because we're getting half as much CO2 for each uh, for each sort of uh, you know, uh, kilowatt hour of electricity or 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 BTU uh, that we that we get of, of energy. So that's been sort of the starting point. Um, In addition to, by the way, local air pollution, where the argument is much clearer for natural gas, much better for local air pollution than, than coal or oil. And that story has gotten a little bit murky in recent years, primarily because we have understood better and better over time that there's a lot of emissions that come before you combust, before you burn the gas, that come from the production of gas, from the transportation, from putting it in a ship, from leaks. Uh, and so, as that data has become better, what we've recognized is that it doesn't take much of emissions throughout that chain to really mute the benefit of natural gas. And so, this in particular, uh, what I'm referring to is methane. Methane is a greenhouse gas, it's much more potent, uh, so, it, it traps a lot more heat than uh, carbon dioxide. Uh, how much more depends on uh, over what time horizon you look at it because methane also uh, dissolves much faster than CO2, so it doesn't stick around in the atmosphere very long. But the bottom line is that people that have looked at this have said, even if you just have about 3% of the gas is released as methane into the atmosphere uh, and become sort of a heat trapping gas, uh, you lose all the benefits of switching from coal to gas, right? That it's that little of a leak that it takes to lose out all the benefits, right? And again, the market, the number depends on where you're going and how you're using the gas and who your competitors are and all that. But so that's been the starting point. And so there's a lot of emphasis to try to say, okay, number one, we don't really understand this number very well. We have estimates for this number. Now we have satellite technology, uh, but satellites are good at, Uh, identifying bigger uh, source of emissions not necessarily smaller ones we have some good coverage in parts of the world we have really poor coverage in other parts of the world so if you're trying to compare the U.S. with Russia or with like Turkmenistan you know how how can you be so sure about the data and and so what that has led is uh, and what I describe in my quarterly report is sort of three different approaches one is how can we reduce the emissions throughout the chain? Uh, So one of the initiatives around carbon capture and storage, it's actually in uh, Qatar that made a big announcement, but also in the United States um, where the producers are saying there is gonna be energy used and we're gonna use gas through the process of liquefaction, which is when you take the gas and you cool it and it becomes a liquid and in doing so shrinks by a factor of 600 in volume. Throughout that energy process, we're going to capture the CO two that is generated that energy in that process, and we're going to put it underground. So, therefore, at that point, you can be sure as a consumer that there have been no emissions associated with that gas. So, if you care about emissions, this is great because you're getting a product that is lower emissions. Having said that, most of the emissions come from burning the gas still, right? So. Uh, That has led to a second initiative, which is around what is called uh, carbon neutral gas. And so the idea here is to say that I am buying a cargo of LNG and uh, I will pay something extra. And the company that is supplying me this cargo is going to take that extra money and they're going to try to put it towards solutions that offset these emissions that is a big topic of conversation because what qualifies as an offset um, what gets counted what is the quality of the offsets uh, that is a whole other field and there's a lot of skepticism about what that looks like Uh, and there's different things that get counted sometimes companies count um, absorbed emissions so if i plant a tree that tree can absorb the co2 that's relatively clear Other times they measure avoided emissions. So if you were to emit two and I gave you some money and you only emit one, do I get to count the one as a credit? I mean, in some ways, yes. But if you emit one and I also emit one, the world still has two. Uh, It would have had three without my intervention, but it still has two. So that's not neutral. Uh, So that's a different thing. And sometimes those two things get conflated. So this idea of the carbon neutral LNG and gas is, is, just really showed up a couple of years ago. So it's really building up. And so we'll have to see how comfortable consumers and suppliers get with the methodology for measuring the emissions and for the uh, solutions that are offered to offset them. And then finally, there's an effort to say, we just need to bring order to this chaos about no one knowing what emissions are associated with the production, how much gas is being vented in the atmosphere, how much gas leaks. And so we've seen companies in the United States in your energy, Qatar as well, others say that we are going to try to improve the transparency so that we will tell you what we know about the emissions associated with the production. So that is good. Uh, If I just tell you how much is emitted, nothing has come down yet, right? So if I just tell you I'm emitting 10, I'm still emitting 10. Um, So it's not a, a solution. To emissions because you're not doing something to reduce them. But the hope is that better transparency, some standardization of the process, uh, better understanding of what data we have faith in and what data do we not have faith in. Uh, All those are processes that together increase confidence in uh, the fuel. That if you don't know how much is emitted, if no one is trying to reduce emissions or along the chain, If you have no confidence, whatever number people are giving you uh, about emissions, if you can see one estimate that is 10 and the other estimate is 100, if you are encountering encountering all these things, it's a very difficult environment for you to have faith in the fuel, right? So this is all about creating additional um, transparency and confidence to say that if you're gonna be using gas, it should be the cleanest and lowest carbon gas possible uh, because that is good for the world. And so the idea is that as we move towards a world where emissions are becoming more and more constrained, the suppliers who can offer fuel, whether it's oil or gas at the lowest carbon intensity are going to be at a competitive advantage. That is the theory of why companies are making these investments, why you're seeing things like carbon capture and storage that is the bet that these suppliers are making is that in the future, someone is gonna care about how much carbon is emitted in the production and the transportation process. And me being able to show that I have a lower number is gonna make me more competitive in the marketplace. That is the idea and therefore also make it more acceptable for the consumer who cares about CO2 emissions to say, well, I am using gas, but I'm using the best gas possible and I'm doing my part to reduce emissions.
0: Yeah, and um, I I I wanted to pivot a little bit now um, towards uh, competition with China more broadly and energy's role in that. Um, obviously, we've been talking about uh, what gas can and can't do um, in Southeast Asia. Um, obviously, successes and failures of the of the Trump administration um, with you know Southeast Asia and Indo Pacific more broadly as our as our focus. Um, but I want to sort of pivot to the Belt and Road Initiative and and sort of do a deep dive into it. Um, and given that, that that is sort of the Chinese equivalent of the industrial strategy that we've been talking about, um, you've written that that we sort of need, as, as the United States, we need a more nuanced view of the BRI, um, and that we need to identify where we can co-opt Chinese capital investment versus being unequivocally opposed to it and countering it. How do you think the uh, United States should modulate or, or adjust its view of the BRI to make it more nuanced, um, especially, you know, given our discussion of energy investment in the Indo-Pacific?
1: So my starting point is there's good projects and there's bad projects and there's chinese projects and there's non chinese projects. And you can have a bad project that is not a chinese project and you can have a good project that just happens to have a chinese investor or financier. And I'm a big believer that we should separate these quadrants out. So as you mentioned I have a long experience in natural gas. There are LNG projects in the world where you had China XM and the US XM invest alongside one another. Uh, I don't see a reason why not. I don't see a reason why if the Chinese are in something that we can't be in something as well. Um, I think our goal should be good projects. If you have a good project um, and it, it's meeting good environmental standards, it's doing good for climate, uh, it has been Uh, awarded or constructed using transparent procurement processes. There's good rule of law. There are no questions about corruption. There's been good stakeholder engagement with the communities that are affected. I I don't believe that it's either the Chinese money or the U.S. money. I don't think that that is a very constructive way to think about the world. I think the view should be we want good projects where we can get them, if we have to work with the Chinese or if we can work with the Chinese, that's good. We shouldn't uh, automatically reject a project because the Chinese are involved. Uh, and at the same time, we should also guard against bad projects that don't have the Chinese in them. Uh, so, so that is my, my overarching philosophy. And I, and I see a lot of times in Washington um, is very much, a, it's either the Chinese or us. Um, And if it's the Chinese, the Chinese is a terrible project. Well, you know, there are a lot of Chinese companies that do good work. And just because the Chinese are involved in something doesn't mean it's a terrible project. There's sectors where they have an extraordinary amount of capacity. Uh, Yes, there are sectors where they're exporting, you know, subpar equipment and they're offering you, they, they come in and they say we have the $10 version, the $8 version, or the $6 version, which one do you want? And a lot of times countries, Countries ask for the $6 version so you get the $6 version, Um, and I think it should be the goal of the United States to try to get the eight or the $10 version uh, right and to help countries. uh, build up to that capacity, Um, but I don't think you should start from the perspective of if it's a Chinese project uh, that it is incompatible for a country to be able to have both Chinese uh, and US investment and to do that you don't need some grand you know alignment and strategy or some you know big shift in anything right it is purely a matter of how you screen projects and what you think is the type of project that is that is acceptable to finance there's nothing that says that you know you have to uh you know if you're a project you can only get u.s money if you don't get chinese money you know you look at the oil and gas sector particularly the lng sector you know you've had the giant the sorry, the Chinese and the Japanese invest alongside each other. You have the Koreans, the Americans, so many projects around the world that have sourced financing from multiple suppliers that sell gas to multiple suppliers that have multiple uh, countries, uh, companies from multiple countries be co-investors in the project. Um, You know, spreading the risk has been one of the main things that the oil industry, uh, oil and gas industry have done over the last hundred years to manage risk. And I don't think that it's a bad, it's a bad idea to do that. Uh, but you just have to have a different mindset and not start from the perspective that it's either us or the Chinese.
0: And, and I think um, a, a part of that new mindset um, and trying to uh, abandon the really just purely diametric view um, of energy geopolitics, us or the Chinese, um, I, think, I think that's going to play a big role um, in the upcoming G20 uh, summit this year. Um, and I was wondering uh, if you could talk a little bit more about how you think the Biden administration could maneuver within multilateral international institutions, like the IMF, like the WTO, um, to promote a green energy policy, uh, to bring uh, bring our allies into our own um, green energy ambitions. Um, h- how do you think that the Biden administration should approach this? I, kn- I know you've written, uh, I think, uh, at least just to uh give give the listeners the uh I, I what I think are some catchy uh top line phrases green development network green recovery facility and green industrial policy dialogue um uh were sort of some of the labels you had given to your ideas. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. So let me let me start I think from the, the beginning which is I think we're at a point in the world where you know you think about the Kyoto Protocol, 997, the Paris Agreement just a few years ago we were trying to get the world to be ambitious and i think now people are ambitious the chinese have announced a target for you know net zero by 2060 the japanese have the koreans have the europeans have the us uh, you know the president biden and his campaigning was there so we're kind of like past the point of trying to get everyone around the room to raise their hand and say like i want to do more we are now in the phase of show me how you're going to do it Let, let's put meats to the bone let's try to figure out how we're going to execute on these very ambitious plans so the starting point for us is that we don't need a global summit where everyone go comes around and says i pledge to do this or i pledge to do that um, from a from a big picture target perspective having said that um, i think we also have a uh, a starting point where we really want to think about um what are the types of things that you can do? Like global governance is a big topic of conversation. Um, It's gonna be very thorny. What are the things that we can do that would really make a difference today that are not about rearranging and doing sort of a new Bretton Woods and like rearranging all the pieces of the international system. so the three things we identify, countries have a lot of debt coming out of COVID-19 and we're gonna have to have a conversation about debt relief. Can you combine that conversation for debt relief with um, ambition for climate? Can we say that if you pledge to do this, we are gonna give you a little more debt relief or this kind of debt relief we can give you as long as you do that. Or um, can we free up some resource that would normally go towards debt service in order for you to have more resources to spend on climate? That's sort of one area that we can see uh, perspective opportunities for collaboration. Number two, the Green Development Network, we we are very good, we have become very good at deploying, especially solar and wind, but it's a geographically concentrated space where we have done this. It's Western Europe, it's China, it's the US, it's a few places in Southeast Asia. There are vast parts of the world that have very little renewable energy capacity. And so what we thought was we need to have a focused initiative to try to get these countries to do more. We need to make more resources available to them. We need capacity building. We need to help help meet their ambition with resources. If a country raises its hand and says, I want to deploy a lot of renewable energy, the world should be there to bring the resource to help them meet that. The industrial dialogue is, is a third idea, and it comes from something different. The idea there is that we need Government policy is central to the energy transition because we're trying to replace the things that we already have with new things. So we need to steer the system away from sort of its least, uh, the path of least resistance, which is just continuing to use hydrocarbons. And in doing so, because we're using government tools uh, and because all the governments in the world want some of the jobs that come with it, this is creating a lot of friction. Uh, It's creating a lot of friction in the trading system. We've had dozens of trade wars and battles and tariffs over the last 10, 15 years around the deployment of renewable energy. And so what we have been trying to figure out is how do you ensure that ambition doesn't get caught up in endless trade disputes? How can you allow countries to be ambitious without them fearing that they're going to have to spend years in the WTO defending themselves and not knowing what the policy landscape is going to look like? Now granted, because we've done the math on this, these trade conflicts haven't really slowed down the, the uh, develop the deployment of renewable energy. They've been mostly a source of frustration and friction. They do add costs, but the cost of deployment have gotten so much cheaper that eventually you overcome whatever the added cost is of, of trade uh, trade barriers. So what we thought to say is that look, this is a addressing climate change is a higher order mission. And we need to um, have some kind of agreement on the, to allow countries to pursue their climate ambition without fear or without triggering endless trade wars. And so we think that this is a place where the United States can say, okay, we want to do the Europeans want to do this green deal. Chinese are going to do this. Can we come up with some rules of the road about how countries are going to pursue this? What is in, what is out, what technologies are acceptable because we need to, invest and we need to subsidize. And yes, we're trying to get some of the domestic jobs associated with these um, with these industries because they're critical to getting political buying at home. And so rather than going through another 15 year cycle of trade disputes, can we save ourselves by coming up with some rules uh, up front? So those are the some areas where we thought there would be concrete, specific ideas that could make a difference. Um, While you take on the broader agenda. Now, you did mention, you know, the IMF. And so I think there's a separate question, which is our world, we have a number of multilateral agencies and institutions that are going to deal with climate that are dealing with climate, and we need to make sure that they're ready to deal with climate, climate refugees, we're going to have a lot of them. Uh, We need to think about what do we do with climate refugees? How do we classify them? What kind of rights do they have? The IMF, we're going to have countries that are going to get hit by climate disasters. They're going to have floods. They're going to have droughts. How does the IMF lend to these countries? How can the IMF help countries plan their macroeconomics and the state finances better for these emergencies? How can countries afford investments in adaptation and in mitigation, given the fact that many of them have strict budget constraints, the IMF can help there. Uh, we have other, we have the public uh, health. Uh, obviously we are in the midst of a, of a global pandemic still. We understand that a changing climate uh, affects public health. It, it affects the kind of organisms that can thrive in different environments uh, and what is, what is more or less conducive to the spread of diseases. And so we need to think about, you know, how does the uh, World Health Organization get geared up to deal with the changing climate? So, and you can multiply this in intellectual property, you can multiply that the WTO, the World Trade Organization, as I said before, you can think about the Security Council and conflict um, about water stress and and other climate. Uh, So there is an entire sort of suite of institutions that require climate proofing that we need to figure out how can this organization thrive in a world that looks very different than the world we've been accustomed to. The problem is that that is just a massive agenda. It's not only a G20 agenda, it deals with big bureaucracies. Some of these have been around for a while. And so it's a massive uh, goal, but it is something that the Biden administration understands. It's just that each conversation uh, has to take place within the confines of a specific institution and institutional priorities and structures. And so it's gonna take a little bit of a longer time. So part of our G20 ideas were, how can you get some things moving while you at the same time also think about that broader institutional reconfiguration to make the multilateral system ready for a changing climate.
0: And I think that there might be some uh, answers uh, to the questions that you're posing that would be in the dialogue, uh, sort of a green industrial dialogue about how do we execute what we all agree that we, we have these high ambitions. How do we execute on it? And we've talked a little bit about um, uh, countries in different stages of development, obviously the United States highly developed, China getting there. Uh, but I wanna talk specifically about um, developing countries um, and sort of zoom in on your uh, global low carbon development pathways. Um, I believe you focus specifically on Vietnam and the Indian state of Gujarat. Um, Can you give us a sense of what needs to happen there to put those countries on a sustainable pathway of development? Um, And and what what sort of market reforms, uh, what sort of institutional change there might need to be in those markets um, and in those governments for those countries to get on a sustainable energy pathway? Um, and more broadly what lessons you learned from taking a look at at those two um, key areas in in the Indo-Pacific region.
1: Yeah so you know we've spent a lot of time looking at these places we also looked at Ethiopia which is uh, I guess you can qualify them as Indo-Pacific-ish but you know what we try to figure out is what have they done right that we can learn from um, and We drew a lot of lessons and I recommend anyone who's interested. There's three reports in each of the case studies and then a synthesis report. So There's a lot of information that I'm going to try to summarize in a minute or two. Um, You know, obviously what they were successful in doing is what the West was successful in doing. It's easier to do solar and wind because we've brought down the cost of solar and wind. It's easier to do electric vehicles today because we've brought down the cost of electric vehicles. So one lesson is that when you make progress in the West, you make it easier also for emerging economies to act. The second thing we really learn, again, I'm trying to be very big picture here, is that institutional institutions and political commitment really matters. When there is someone high up that makes something a priority, uh, you can really get things moving and getting things done. Uh, And engagement in that context really matters. Pushing governments to act, uh, NGOs, uh, local activists, all that stuff really adds up to create an environment where more action is possible. The third thing we learned also is a lot of what these countries need to do is uh, sort of not do something. So, you know, we have uh, in Vietnam, you know, a lot of local mobility is uh, motorcycles you know, we don't want everyone to switch to a car and then try to make that car electric. Um, we have, you know, mixed use zoning and, 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 and neighborhoods in Vietnam that is great for low carbon mobility. Uh, so part of it was also to say, you know, you don't have to follow the same development path as you did in the West. Uh, you can exploit and take advantage of things that you have that are going for you already. Where we saw, Not as much progress was an industrial energy efficiency. That's tough in the West. It was tough in emerging economies, mobility, you know, public transportation, biking, walking, again, also tough in the West. We're gotten a little bit better at it, especially with COVID, but still very tough. It was tough in emerging economies too. Um, But we also, finally, I think one of the things that hardened us the most is We didn't see a huge trade-off between economic development and doing the low carbon option right so when you think about at the end of the day and you say you know did we have an example of a country that was doing great chose the low carbon pathway and ruined itself the answer is no and that is a very heartening thing to to observe right because i think sometimes there is a skepticism or a fear that if you go for the low carbon option you're going to jeopardize or you can undercut your economic uh, success. And that's not something we saw.
0: All right, um, and uh, before we, uh, I was gonna give my uh, concluding question, but before we, uh, before I ask you that, is there anything else, any sort of insights, developments, uh, commentary um, relating to energy in the global sphere, energy as a part of US strategy, natural gas, EV development that you'd wanna add um, that you don't think we've covered just yet?
1: The, the one thing I'll just add is I think one of the things I've been very passionate and written about is, you know, energy is a big system. A lot of people think that it takes very long time for the system to change, and that's true until it isn't. We have a lot of examples of systems that have been inertial and change very slowly, but we also have a lot of examples where, if you want to bring about change, and if there's a commitment to change, or if there's a new technology, things can change very quickly. And so, for anyone listening and daunted by the massiveness of the task. Uh, it is quite massive, but we also have a lot of experience and, and, and case studies of places that have changed things very quickly.
0: Great, yeah. And I um, we do, uh, as, a, as a final question, um, uh, uh, the podcast is called Policy Punchline. So we like to ask uh, uh, to see if you, you wanna close with one punchline uh, f- from, uh, from your perspective uh, on the issue we've been talking about. So I, I would ask, what is your one conclusion or punchline, if you will, uh, for students, you know, obviously a lot of our listeners are students, uh, students who are interested in addressing the looming challenges the United States posed both by China and the climate. Um, and, and as one of the foremost policy experts in this field, what advice would you give to folks who are looking to become the next generation of policymakers uh, grappling with these issues?
1: Well, I mean, the first thing is I'll say we need your help. We need you to sort of jump in and, and help out because we, we have so much to change and transform. Uh, right. And what I always think about is there's a lot of stuff we really know how to do, and we just need more people at it and pushing to do it. And there's a lot of stuff we really have no idea what to do, um, whether it is decarbonizing specific sectors or uh, how to pair, you know, regional economic development opportunity that I've talked about before. So there's just so many different ways to engage, uh, whether you're interested in numbers or not, policy, international affairs. This is such a rich domain that everyone has a role to play. And one of the things I've always appreciated and appreciate more living in Washington is um, even people you disagree with, they have a role to play in the ecosystem because it's gonna take every one of us uh, doing their part to, to meet this challenge. So uh, you're gonna find a niche uh, and because there's a lot of them because it's a big challenge.
0: That's great. Yeah, thank you for that. That's, that's encouraging for me as someone who definitely wants to be taking on these issues in the future. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.